You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Good morning and welcome back to Bookish. The canon continues. I am your host, Michelle Collins. We are here to bridge that sacred secular divide book by book. Um, but starting today, I, I'm a little at a loss today, to be honest with you. I had a book prepared and uh, I've, you know, had my notes, I had read the book, I had it all set to go. And then quite honestly, the events uh, recently happening within our country have served to remind me that possibly another discussion is necessary. Um, I will be honest with you and tell you that I feel woefully inadequate to this discussion. Um, uh, of course, I have never had to live my life uh, in fear of not being able to speak my mind because of the color of my skin. Um, I've never had to worry about the fact that I may be considered a criminal because of my complexity, my complexion, excuse me. So I am woefully inadequate to this conversation. I'm a white woman. Um, I've lived with a great amount of privilege in my life. And I will say that I feel like I have an obligation because of that privilege to speak into those places where it could help other people. But then I am taken back by the obvious ideas that nobody needs me to be their savior. Um, and so I, I'm at a loss as to how to continue with that. And yet I feel like it's still a discussion that needs to be had. Um, unfortunately, time constraints, because of the fact that I changed my mind with how I wanted to do this, didn't allow for um, me to have anybody with me that whose voice you should hear. Uh, I actually decided that I'm going to go back to a book that I talked about before um, and reintroduce it. But then in, in a Addition to that, I want to actually share some of the things that are going on now, some of the voices that are speaking now, uh, the responses, the reactions, um, and and let those voices speak for themselves. While they aren't here to actually say anything, I hope that you'll hear their voices through what I say rather than my own, um, and know that my intent is not to step on anybody else's right to speak, but simply to share the opinions of people that I value greatly um, and allow their voices to be heard on a difficult subject matter. Um, So the book I'm going to bring back, if you were a listener of this podcast previously, you'll probably remember that I did the book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree um, by James H. Cohn. A little bit about James. He, of course, was widely regarded as one of the most influential theologians in American history, um, he actually was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Science Sciences. Um, but this book has been quoted quite honestly in my realm anyway, at least a few, more than a few times over the last several days, um, with regard to the circumstances surrounding, um, the recent death at the hands of police of another black man. Um, I, I'd like to say those are few and far between, but we all know they are not several weeks prior to this there was a, a black woman who was killed in her own home by police officers. And previous to that, in February of this year, a black man jogging through a neighborhood was murdered uh, by two people who were not even police officers, but felt that it was their right um, to inflict their sense of justice into a situation in which they really should not have even been involved. Um, but this book is instrumental in this discussion and because, because I think that it illustrates quite clearly the ideas, of course, of historical lynching of African American people within our country and its, its similarity to what is happening in our current culture, but also its similarity to the actual cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, I know so many people, of course, I have identified as Christian in the past. I'm not so sure I want to anymore uh, with regard to American Christianity, but I do still maintain and believe in Jesus Christ and maintain a relationship with him. Um, And as such, of course, the cross has become a very large symbol um, in the lives of Christians. It is the symbol in the lives of Christian of sacrificial life giving uh, love of God. And because of that, there is, there are 
extenuating circumstances that associate lynching with the cross of Christ. And so I'd like to go back to this discussion a little bit. Um, I'll be honest with you and say, I don't know how long this recording will go. Quite honestly, I again, I feel inadequate to the discussion, but also because it's so emotional that it's difficult to speak on. And I'm not even somebody that's had to live through any of these experiences. Um, so as I said, I want to I want to touch on this book, the premise of this book, some of the history associated with lynching in our country, and then I'd like to I'd like to discuss some of the more current events and the voices that are speaking out now, um, along with the circumstances that are arising based on the most recent murder of another man, another black man. So I'm going to start with the cross and the lynching tree. As I told you, it's by James H. Cohn. He was, of course, a theologian um, and a social critic. He was uh, not adverse to speaking his mind about how he saw the lives of Black people in our country and its association with the Christian ideals that we often take for granted. Um, He pointed out a paradoxical relationship between the hope of the cross and actually the ugly lynching, the ugly um, reality of the lynching tree. He also said there was a profound paradox of the cross. And he argued that the cross should serve as the paradigmatic symbol through which one can discuss being both black and Christian in the United States. Um, So as I said, I wanted to go back to a little bit of the history. Uh, The first time I went through this book, in all honesty, I believe I remember making the the comment that the book literally made me sick to my stomach. Um, Some of the violence discussed in the book, the historical violence, is just a little much to take. However, I feel like it's definitely a part of the conversation and needs to remain a part of the conversation. So I kind of wanted to go back to this for a little bit and and just talk a a little bit about the history of uh, lynching and violence against blacks in our country, how often that was associated with entertainment and even um, it was even advocated by our political, uh, our politicians of that time. So, and I'm going to apologize right now. Um, I'm going to stumble over this a lot because honestly, I'm almost at a loss for words for it. I'm almost unable to form co- you know, coherent thoughts with regard to what I'm seeing on a daily basis in the news, uh, the voices that I'm hearing, and the ugliness that is prevalent in, in our country at the moment um, with regard to this subject matter, as well as lots of other subject matters, but sp- specifically this one. Um, I want to read you a a part of the introduction here. The cross and the lynching tree are separated by nearly 2,000 years. One is the universal symbol of Christian faith. The other is the quintessential symbol of black oppression in America. Though both are symbols of death, one represents a message of hope and salvation, while the other signifies the negation of that message by white supremacy. Despite the obvious similarities between Jesus' death on the cross and the death of thousands of black men and women strung up to die on a lamppost or tree, relatively few people, apart from black poets, novelists, or other reality-seeing artists, have explored the symbolic connections. So, of course, his contention is that Jesus was strung up on a tree, that's biblical, and so many Uh, African-American people within the history of the United States have suffered the same consequence and that there is a connection, that there is a commonality um, to the experience that goes to to the heart of violence and the need to control other people. Um, I'm going to continue a little bit here. In its heyday, the lynching of black Americans was no secret. It was a public spectacle, often announced in advance in newspapers and over radios, attracting crowds of up to 20,000 people. An unspeakable crime, it is a memory that most white Americans would prefer to forget. For African Americans, the memory of disfigured black bodies swinging in the southern breeze is so painful that they too try to keep these horrors buried deep down in their consciousness until, like a dormant volcano, They erupt uncontrollably, causing profound agony and pain. But as with the evils of chattel slavery and Jim Crow segregation, blacks and whites and other Americans who want to understand the true meaning of the American experience need to remember lynching. To forget this atrocity leaves us with a fraudulent perspective of this society 
and of the meaning of the Christian gospel for this nation. I'm going to have more to say about that, the Christian response to all of this in a little bit, but I want to continue to let James's voice um, do the majority of the speaking. He goes on, until we can see the cross and the lynching tree together, until we can identify Christ with a crucified black body hanging from a lynching tree, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy. Um, that's what we're seeing right now. That legacy is rearing its ugly head. Uh, and that makes it sound as though at some point that legacy you know, was inactive. And I don't believe that's true. I recently saw um, a quote by Will Smith that said, uh, I- I'm going to get this wrong because I don't have it in front of me, but basically the idea that racism isn't new or isn't, it isn't new, it's just now being recorded. Um, and I think that's true. Much of these ideals have existed throughout our history um, in action, in thought, in word, in deed. And the difference now is that it's much more accessible to everyone because of social media, because of the news, because of uh, video and recording devices that are showing us the reality of how um, violence is associated and attached to the living experience of many that live within our country. While we are considered the land of the free and the home of the brave, that freedom is often not allocated to those um, who are considered different or other. And we have a very large problem with othering in our country instead of seeing us all as a collective. Um, And now I'm starting to preach, so I'm going to, again, go back to the words of others, as I said I wanted to do. Um, I'm going to be flipping through the book here, so you're probably going to hear these pages turn. Um, But let's talk for a minute about some of the violence in the history. Um, There's a quote here that I found horrible and yet necessary at the same time. Hundreds of Kodaks clicked all morning at the scene of the lynching. People in automobiles and carriages from miles around to view the corpse dangling from the end of a rope. Picture cards photographers installed at portable printing plant at the bridge and heaped a harvest in selling the postcard showing a photograph of the lynched Negro. Women and children were there by the score. At a number of, a country, of country schools, the day's routine was delayed until boys and girl pupil, boy and girl pupils could get back from viewing the lynched man. That's in 1915. And of course, we look at that and we think that's so very long ago. And yet it isn't. It, it isn't that long ago. Um, But how sickening that this was considered entertainment to the point of taking pictures and selling those pictures. The fact that young boys and girls were taken out of school in order to be involved in this process, to watch this happen. It's gruesome. Um, It's disturbing. And those are easy words to say about this. They are by no means what should be said about it. Um, In that era... The lynching tree joined the cross as the most emotionally charged symbols in the African-American community, symbols that represented both death and the promise of redemption, judgment and the offer of mercy, suffering and the power of hope. Both the cross and the lynching tree represented the worst in human beings and at the same time, an unquenchable ontological thirst for life that refuses to let the worst determine our final meaning. Now. In the Christian realm, of course, we consider the cross to be this great symbol of sacrifice and love. Um, A man who willingly gave up his life in order to change our mind about God, in order to absorb the violence of humanity so that he could show us God was different. Um, Ironically, that's juxtaposed with the idea of the lynching tree in which the worst of humanity is showing their unlove for others in humanity. Um, it's disturbing. It's, it's deeply wounding to those people involved, of course, to those people that are ancestors uh, or descendants of those that experienced that. But it's disturbing to the moral fabric of our country, um, to the ideas and the message of Christianity that God loves everyone. And yet our history is surrounded in this Christian nation 
by experiences of those that have been treated less than lovingly, and that's saying it nicely, by those who espouse the very values of Christianity. That is what I find problematic. Well, among other things, but uh, again, I'm going to continue. Um, and this brings up a very valid point. Lynching as a primary, primarily mob violence and torture direct lynching as primarily mob violence and torture directed against blacks began to increase after the Civil War and the end of slavery. When the 1967 Congress passed the Reconstruction Act, granting black men the franchise and citizenship right of rights of participation in the affairs of government. Now, it seems almost backwards. It, fe- it seems like that would have been when we saw the, de- the decrease in that kind of violent behavior uh, directed towards black men and women. Um, slavery had ended. They were afforded the rights um, at that time, the rights of <clears throat> citizenship. But ironically, as much comes back to in our country, it comes back to um, value that is placed on something. And of course, slaves had value. So while there might have been violence associated with owning slaves at that time, and there was, um, we didn't see as many lynchings then because those slaves had value. They were there to work. And so because of that, you wouldn't want to kill off your workforce. Ironically, when, uh, when sla- uh, slavery was considered uh, or was declared unlawful and those slaves were offered or given their right to citizenship, that is when lynching began. It was almost as though um, the idea was that, well, they're no longer valuable to me, so they're just no longer valuable. And I, I feel like that is a notion that has been perpetuated over and over throughout the years, up until the current time, that we have assigned value to people based on the, uh, the complexion, based on where they live, based on their economic status, we have assigned value uh, to people as though there are different levels of value in the kingdom. And again, speaking primarily to those who espouse Christianity, um, how do we do that? How do we say that one life is worth more than another when all are precious in God's sight? We cannot be a part of a system that would say that this is acceptable. Uh, again, finding it hard to not, to withhold my own viewpoints on all of this, and I want to stick to these voices. Excuse me. Um, ironically, even at that time, as I said, it was an entertainment value process. Um, they were spectacles. That I find that deeply disturbing and and somewhat sickening. Like I f- that makes me feel so sick to my stomach to think that a somebody's life was considered a public spectacle and entertainment. Um, But it was considered, you know, it was a public symbol basically of white men protecting the purity of their race. Now we still hear language like that today. It's, it's frowned upon, but it's become even more prevalent in the last few years. It's become downright open, which is disturbing. We've created an atmosphere in which it's much more acceptable to, to show this kind of uh, discrimination and ideas of white supremacy, and that's disturbing. Um, it, if those exist, and they do, they should be kept on the run and in silence. Um, we should be, coming, be becoming more and more open to the freedom of every individual, um, and yet we're not. Uh, and, it, and it goes back. Even in that time, the elected representatives, even president, there was a president that was open about this stuff. Um, and no, I'm not talking about now, but let's be real for a moment. Our current officials in government have often made conversational points that are, that at the very least lean to this direction, that use um, verbiage that would seem to associate them with ideals of white supremacy. And I know that'll piss some people off, but I'm sorry. You have to own your rhetoric. If you're going to open your mouth and speak, you have to own the words that come out of your mouth. And if they are associated with the era of slavery and discrimination and white supremacy, then you have to own that you are using that as a stepping stool for your rhetoric now. If you don't, you are being less than honest. It's just the way it is. Well, that's the way I see it. And and this is, of course, my voice. So, 
Um, but let's talk a little bit about the Christian response. I want to go to another place here in the book. Um, uh, and a, a few reminders. Cone actually writes this. He said, if the God of Jesus's cross is found among the least, the crucified people of the world, then God is also found among those lynched in American history. Again, if you are a Christian and you are espousing the ideals of the least of these and Jesus on the cross, you have to see the correlation to those that were put on the lynching tree. They were the least of us, the least of these. They were the put upon, the maligned, the oppressed. They were. And because of that, our Christian response has to be with love and care and and a desire for better. Um, so again, I want to go, as I said, back to kind of the response. Um, he starts with uh, a couple of quotes here at the beginning of this chapter, and I, I want to read them. Um, this is a quote by Ray Stannard Baker says they murdered the Negro in cold blood in the jail doorway. Then they dragged him to the principal business street and hung him to a telegraph pole, afterwards riddling his lifeless body with revolver shots. And there the Negro hung until daylight the next morning, an unspeakably grisly, dangling horror. That's sickening. James Cutler goes on to uh, be quoted as saying, our country's national crime is lynching. And I would, I would add that our national crime continues to be the oppression of people of color in not maybe so overt ways, but certainly within a, a systemic racist systems. And quite honestly, in recent days, in outright violence against people of color. Um, between 1880 to 1940, white Christians lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner with obvious echoes of the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. Yet these Christians, and that's in air quotes, did not see the irony or contradiction in their actions. I feel like that is still a problem today, that we have many that espouse the ideas of Christianity and yet are just as guilty as being oppressive in their viewpoints to those people that they would find less than. And of course, they're not going to say, I consider that person less than, but their actions and their deeds and those things that they represent and support would speak a different tune. So we have to be careful in our Christian response that we are seeing the obvious similarities to how these people are being treated and how Jesus was treated. And yet we champion Jesus um, we are thankful for his sacrifice, and yet we don't see the value of the lives of these people that are suffering in like manner. So um, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead here. There's so much to this book. I would recommend this book to anybody. Of course, in this current time, it is absolutely a, a must read, in my opinion, on the history of the connection between that of lynching and the, the cross. I mean, there's so much correlation between the two, but I want to step away from the book a little bit now. As I said, I don't know that I want to talk a long time today, but I do want to share some of the stuff that's happening now, some of the voices that are speaking now. Um, a lot of their, a lot of it will include anger. A lot of it will include um, something that many people will find distasteful. And that's okay, because I feel like that has to be a part of the conversation. So I want to talk a little bit um, about the civil rights era. And I'll just stay there for a few minutes. Um, there's a quote here, and it's included in this book, actually. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., his quote was, I will die standing up for the freedom of my people. Now, of course, he was saying that as I would die for, you know, for my people. But the ironic thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, he was prophetic because he did die standing up for the freedom of his people. Um, further, he said, if a man hasn't discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. Well, I would suggest that he espoused that literally. He died standing up for what he believed in. Um, and so we have this whole era of civil rights in which many of the voices at that time were considered dangerous. You know, I, I was listening to a good friend of mine just recently on an interview, um, Derek Day, and he was commenting, he was asked about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And his response was, look, he wasn't looked 
kindly upon at that time. It wasn't as though he were a hero at that time. Um, he was, he was, he was an outcast. He was considered dangerous by this, by the system and by many of the people of that day. He was of course seen as a voice for those that were maligned, but they were not the majority. So the majority of people did not view him positively. It's only now that you'll see many white people quote Martin Luther King Jr. And ironically, in the last few days, I've seen him quoted quite a few times as though he were a voice of, of peaceful protest. He wasn't always. And I, I'm going to share a quote. Um, I, I shared this on my Facebook page earlier. Um, and I think it it's it's valuable to remember. If we're going to quote Martin Luther King Jr., we're going to have to recognize him for all of the things that he was about. And so this quote is, um, but it is not enough for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without, at the same time, condemning the contingent intolerable conditions that exist in our society. These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in a violent rebellion to get attention. And I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. So I've seen so many in the last few days condemning what's happening in society right now. Of course, most people are aware that over the last few days, there have been numerous riots and protests, um, many of them peaceful, some of them violent, um, some of them becoming violent. Um, and, and there's been a great outcry. Again, I, I come from a perspective of a privileged white woman. And so a lot of my, a lot of my interactions with people around me are in that same demographic. And just this morning, I saw two or three more people who were speaking out against how awful the, the rioting and the violence was, that it wasn't helping the situation. It wasn't helping their, their neighborhoods or their, their condition. And yet when I went back to those people's pages to see where they had spoken out about the murder that had instigated these riots, there was complete silence. We cannot be more upset at the response than we are at those things that have propagated the response. The violence, the anger, the murder, those things that have happened over the last few months have been building to this point that have led to this kind of response. And why? Because there's a sense of helplessness. And as Martin Luther King Jr. said, it is the language of those unheard. They feel unheard. Many people feel unheard. And I hate using the word they because it sounds as though it's somebody separate from me. But in this reality, it is. I don't have that experience. Um, I'm going to read you another quote. Uh, this is from Malcolm X, who, of course, was often known as being much more interested in the violent, um, the violent response. However, that's often taken out of context as well. But this is his quote. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, that's not progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. Progress comes from healing the wound that the blow made. They haven't begun to pull the knife out. Actually, they won't even admit that the knife is there. And that's where we still are. If we're really honest about what's happening in our country, we are still at a place where we are in denial that the knife has been put in anyone's back, that the knife even exists. The common refrain is, I'm not racist. I have black friends. That's, that makes no sense. Because you know a black person doesn't mean that you can't espouse racial inadequacies, that you, you, that you cannot be racist. That is not true. We are every day associated with and benefit beneficiaries of a system that is inherently racial. There are systems that are set up that we benefit from. And if we don't try to take down those systems, if we don't try to speak out against those systems that would hold others down, we are in fact operating from a racial point of view that would hold others down. That doesn't mean that you're out every day speaking negatively about people of color or that you're embracing violence and pain against other people. What it means is that you are complicit in your silence to the violence perpetrated against those people. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about 
some of the stuff that we're seeing in the news right now. So, of course, there's the riots. Um, we go back several months ago and we had the murder of, um, and I never get his name right, Aubrey, who was jogging through a neighborhood. Um, over and over, I have heard, well, we don't have the full story yet. That's unacceptable. That's completely unacceptable. What we have is an unarmed man jogging through a neighborhood who was killed by two armed men and a third videoing it because they felt that he might be guilty of something. That's not justice. That's not even that's not even justice in anybody's mind. I don't know how you can claim there's justice involved with that. Um, we go forward a few months and we find um, a black woman who was killed in her apartment. She was shot numerous times by officials who broke into her apartment and basically assassinated her when the person they were looking for was at a completely, it was supposed to be a different address and was already in custody. Not only was that adding insult to injury, her fiance who was with her at the time was arrested. For what? He was later released, but that doesn't take away the damage. And then most currently, of course, the man who was held down um, with a police officer's knee to his neck for eight to ten min- eight to nine minutes while being told by passersby and people videoing the, the, the experience that he, there was something wrong. He was bleeding. He was begging to be able to breathe. And they held him down. And then we're curious as to why people are marching in the streets, why people no longer feel safe, and, and they've decided that their safety requires them to be vocal. We've reached a place where violence was the only outcome that could be seen. So I want to I want to share with you some quotes, um, different responses from different people that I have uh, seen recently. I mentioned a little bit ago um, my friend Derek Day. He wrote um, a blog the other day with regard to this conversation, and I want to read you a small part of it. Um, let me get to it. My absolute anger and disappointment lie with the community that calls itself Christian. You see, Christians are supposed to be loving, forgiving, and in the modern context, pro-life. The hard truth is that they are none of these. For years, I have made it a point to build bridges between races and cultures. I have diligently extended empathy and compassion to all. But it seems that every time some black person is killed by reckless civilians or overzealous law enforcement officers, I reach out to my white Christian friends, and do you know what I get? Deafening silence. I have a few white friends now who are very vocal about this. Um, one, One, Keith Giles, even wrote a blog about it. I'm grateful for these folks because without them, I believe I would lose all hope for humanity. Um, and then he goes on a little bit later in the blog and he says, the purpose of this piece is not to point fingers or to try and guilt people into action. The purpose of this is to simply give you a view from where I sit. And this is me adding here, but that's what we should be interested in. As a black man in America, we should be interested in his view. I want to see Ahmaud Arbery's killers brought to justice and the full weight of the criminal justice system brought to bear upon them. I would like for Ahmad's parents and siblings to have closure and peace. I want to make this incident the last time this kind of hate-driven foolishness happens. I have five beautiful sons, one the same age as Ahmad Arbery. And like Ahmad, they are athletic and dedicated to physical fitness. They love to run. They are highly intelligent and well-mannered. Like Ahmad, They are full of promise and potential, and it's my job to give them all the tools to live their lives to the fullest. Unlike the conversation most of you have with your kids when they leave the house, I have to add something frighteningly frustrating. Don't be black so you don't die. So I'd like to turn this around. Can someone please get angry about this so that my sons don't have to worry about not being something that they're unable to change? Is that too much to ask? No, Derek, it's not too much to ask. It just needs to be said over and over and over and over. 
and I appreciate his voice in doing so. Um, I have some other ones here. Um, this is another quote that I saw in an interview um, that was posted with Martin Luther King Jr. And this was his quote. I contend that the cry of black power is at the bottom a reaction to the reluctance of white power to make the kind of changes necessary to make justice a reality for the Negro. And then I think I've already shared this one, but I think we have his, this was another quote. I think we have to see that the riot is the language of the unheard. And that's something that we're going to have to keep saying because as the situation unfolds over the next few days, of course, we're going to hear the perspective of business owners losing their businesses. And yes, that is a tragedy. We're going to hear of the people that are hurt. And yes, that is a tragedy. We're going to hear about the supposed violence, but let's get real and start looking at the situation. Any of those videos that you can see, violence is begetting violence. And often in those cases, police presence was the instigation of that violence. Um, I'm not going to excuse buildings being burned down. I'm not going to excuse violent behavior and people being hurt. But what I am going to say is, do I understand it? Yes, I understand it. I wish it didn't have to happen. But if that is the, the voice of the unheard, then we need to start hearing them. We need to start listening. If we want to avoid these kind of violent interactions as a response, we have to listen. We have to hold those people accountable that should be held accountable. And we have to make changes to our culture and our society that allow for the future benefit of every person, regardless of the color of their skin. Um, I had a couple other things here I wanted to read. Um, one of them, another friend of mine, uh, Kyle Butler, I wanted to read something that he wrote. Um, it's very simple, but again, we need to listen. This is what he wrote. I want to breathe. I want my sons to breathe. I want my sisters to breathe. I want my daughters to breathe. I want my mother to breathe. I want my brothers to breathe. I want my father to breathe. Breathe. I want my nephews to breathe. I want my nieces to breathe. I want my cousins to breathe. I want my neighbors to breathe. I want my coworkers to breathe. I want people I don't know to breathe. Am I asking for too much? Again, no, Kyle, you're not asking for too much. We have to start finding the value in people regardless of who they are and whether we agree with them or not. I'm going to share another voice here with you. I don't know this person. I came across this quote. Um, the gentleman's name is Caleb Combs. Um, and it's, it's a long kind of diatribe, but I want to read it because I think he brings up some very good points. He says, don't be a they had my support until they started rioting, looting, looting kind of person. The reaction of a group of people that continuously are murdered, oppressed, and stomped on by those who are supposed to be serving and protecting them, whose attempts at peacefully protesting are met with silence, inaction, or even they can protest but not like that, or police in riot gear just waiting and hoping for an escalation. All the while, armed white men with guns storming government buildings walk away unharmed, listened to, with at least some of their demands being met, is frankly not yours to police, nor have you ever been put into a position so desperate, so infuriating, that violence and destruction is the only way that people start paying attention to you. You want to stop seeing riots and the destruction of cities? Lend your voice against corrupt systems and those in power and make them listen through peaceful means because until they do listen to the words of those they oppress and their allies, they're going to have to get used to listening to fire instead. Frankly, their reaction does not delegitimize their cause, especially when they've tried the right way over and over and this shit still keeps happening without the slightest bit of real reform. It also doesn't excuse you from doing the right thing and publishing and pushing for reform. This is a reminder that those who stand silently by in the face of injustice side themselves with said injustice. So say something, call out injustice, especially when it's so blatant 
that I'll wait for you all for all the details is nothing but a cop out from saying something people may not like or your own racism surfacing. Sign petitions, join protests, write elected officials, demand justice, and call out the attitudes that perpetuate violence against black folk. If you really want to see rioting and looting become a thing of the past, then fight the systems that leave people with no other choice than to burn everything to the ground, because that's the only way people will start listening. If your gut reaction to reading this or hearing this is in anger or frustration towards me, or more importantly, towards those fighting to have their voices heard and their needs met, that's your shit that you need to handle, not theirs, not mine. Handle it. Get to work. Now, that's pretty blunt, but I happen to agree with him. You cannot sit around and bitch about the response that is happening in your communities and in society in general without first approaching and dealing with the circumstances that led to that response. This old idea that people are more uh, upset about profane responses or violent responses than they are about the actions that necessitated those responses is old. It's unjust, and we need to stop it. If you're upset that I used you know, a bad word, but you don't listen to why that supposedly profane word was used, you are a part of the problem. If you are on social media or within your realm of friends and, and interaction, and all you can do is complain about the obvious disrespect for businesses because of looting, and you don't also take into effect or account of the people that have been murdered at the hands of those that are supposed to protect and serve, you should shut up. You do no one any favors. You do society in general no favors to call out bad behavior on one side and negate to recognize it on the other. And that again is me preaching a little, and I apologize for that. I apologize for my voice in it. I will not apologize for the sentiment. Um, I'm going to read... One more thing. Actually, I have a couple more things I want to read. There was another one that I just came across a little bit ago. Um, As many of you know, a former president, Barack Obama, released a statement this morning, and I I wanted to read a little bit of it. I'm sure you've all read it, but I'm still going to go to it. Um, He he called this my statement on the death of George Floyd, who, of course, was the man that was murdered the other day. He said, I want to share parts of the conversation I've had with friends over the past couple of days about the footage of George Floyd dying face down on the street under the knee of a police officer in Minnesota. The first is an email from a middle-aged African-American businessman. And this is the quote, dude, I've got to tell you the George Floyd incident in Minnesota hurt. I cried when I saw that video. It broke me down. The knee on the neck is a metaphor for how the system so cavalierly holds black folks down, ignoring the cries for help. People don't care, and it's truly tragic. Um, he, Barack goes on to say that the circumstances um, of my friend may be different, but their anguish is the same. It's shared by me and millions of others. It's natural to wish for life to just get back to normal as a pandemic and economic crisis upend everything around us. But we have to remember that for millions of Americans, being treated differently on account of race is tragically, painfully, maddeningly normal. Whether it's while dealing with healthcare system or interacting with the criminal justice system or jogging down the street or just watching birds in a park, this shouldn't be normal in 2020 America. It can't be normal. If we want our children to grow up in a nation that lives up to its highest ideals, we can and must do better. That's the voice of reason, ladies and gentlemen. We have to do better. We cannot blithely sit around and say, I just want life to get back to normal, assuming that normal that we experience is the normal for everyone. That's not true. So the final thing that I want to say here, and this is going to be my voice, It's going to be a call to those that would call themselves Christian because that is my people group. Um, I'm going to read something I wrote a little bit ago. I want to speak to the Christian community with regard to the violence of recent events. Over the course of the last few months, we have seen numerous examples of police brutality and murder of citizens. Further, we have witnessed regular, everyday citizens take upon themselves the mantle of justice as it pertains to crime. In each of these cases, I have heard over and over that we need to wait until all the information is available before we speak. 
And to that, I want to say, bullshit. We are witness to countless violence act, violent acts as well as violent rhetoric in the media on a daily basis, and yet we are silent if it does not fit our political bias. This must stop. Identifying as a Christian means that your allegiance is to something greater than the failing systems of mankind. Further, if you call yourself pro-life, then your voice should be raised along with countless others in opposition to the oppression of any people group, regardless of your agreement with said people group. We must hold our elected officials and public servants to, at the very least, a standard of dignity and justice and life. We have an obligation to do so, a mandate from God to the least of these. If you praise those individuals who stand outside abortion clinics to speak for life, you must also stand for those that would seek protection and justice for the already living. Innocence is not a standard for the right to life, as is often said with regard to abortion. Those who are already living deserve no less than the same right to life, regardless if you agree with their lifestyle, criminal standing, immigration status, or the color of their skin. If you live your life from a place of privilege, it is your obligation to do so, demanding the betterment of those around you. Contact your elected officials. Demand better. Hold those that are called to protect and serve to a higher standing standard. And if you spend your life answering that call to protect and serve, do so remembering that you are called to your community in that way, not only to those you work with. If you see abuse, you should call it out. Police yourselves. Silence from anyone is complicity. That's all I'm going to say on this subject. I, I offered my voice far too many times in that, and that wasn't my, um, my goal. I wanted to highlight some of the voices that are prevalent in society right now speaking out about these things. Um, I do suggest that you go and read The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Um, I have a couple other suggestions. There are a couple books that I just got and I probably will do for this podcast. Um, they are Stamped um, and another How to Be an Anti-Racist. Uh, I want to look at those in depth. I think that they are something that we need to be discussing, obviously, in light of current events. Um, with that, I'm going to end the podcast today. Please be safe. Please take care of one another. Please, please be voices for those that have no voice. Please stand in front of those who can't stand for themselves. Please be the Christian that we're supposed to be. 